Well, now this weekend, we're going to return to our study of Daniel. It's the Old Testament book that has a great deal to say to us about keeping faith when we find ourselves in a corrupt culture. And one of the primary things it has to say is embedded in chapter 4. The testimony recorded there alerts us to a stubborn, ancient evil. Perhaps the most ancient and stubborn evil of all. It reminds us that that evil not only corrupts human cultures, it also corrupts individual human hearts. It was deeply embedded in the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. And it had left him spiritually bound and blind to the glory of God. That evil continues to be deeply embedded in the hearts of people everywhere. And where it's embedded in human hearts, it always leaves people in that same condition, bound and blind to the glory of God. And Scripture warns us it can and often is found in the hearts of God's people. So if we fail to respond to its stubborn appeals with equally stubborn humility and repentance, it will corrupt our souls. And if we allow our souls to be corrupted, we will struggle to keep our faith in a corrupt culture. For all those reasons, chapter 4 may be one of the most important chapters in all of the book of Daniel because it exposes the inherent danger of an evil that we readily condemn when we see it in others, but frequently condone when we find it in our own hearts. I'm talking about that dangerous defect we know as pride. And Nebuchadnezzar's testimony both warns us and encourages us in regards to pride. It warns us that pride can flourish even when God has addressed it directly. And that'll be our focus this weekend. How pride stubbornly resists God's repeated warnings and how it justifies itself. Then in several weeks, I'll unpack how God finally broke through Nebuchadnezzar's stubborn resistance. And that he did so encourages us because it affirms that God's intense grace can humble the most intense pride and bring it to its senses. It may take a while. It usually does. But thankfully, God isn't in a hurry. Now, our text this weekend comes from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It captures a moment of liberating recognition on the heels of God's successful, tough love intervention. It's found in chapter 4, verse 37. The king said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true, and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. I've entitled our study this week, 12 Months Later. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to declare your truth prophetically and accurately. 
We don't want to be deceived. We want to know the truth that sets the human heart free. Father, by your Spirit, help each one of us to understand what you're saying to us this day, individually and collectively, and help us to apply it in faith. As always, we pray these things for the honor of our Savior, for the advancement of his mission in our world. And we pray them in his great name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice this weekend through my raspy voice, may the Lord be with you. Two weeks ago, as we concluded our look at the story of Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace, I suggested that that story is more than a tale of uncompromised devotion, mature faith, and God's incredible power. I suggested that it's just one piece of a larger story, the story of a sovereign God pursuing the soul of Nebuchadnezzar a proud earthly sovereign who was accustomed to speaking and acting as if he were God. And since scripture tells us pride always leads eventually to a fall, if not in this life, then certainly in the next, it was inevitable that Nebuchadnezzar would fall. And when he fell, he fell hard. He was accustomed to people kneeling before him. He would soon find himself on his knees eating grass like a beast of the field. Now the Holy Spirit allowed Nebuchadnezzar to tell his story in his own words. And like any good preacher, he opened by stating the main point of his testimony. Then he repeated it three times. Then he summarized it again at the end with this declaration, quote, it's God who rules, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride, end quote. Now with that, let's unpack the story. Nehemiah, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony begins the way that most testimonies begin, with what I like to call grace-enlightened hindsight. He looked back with a clarity that had been previously sorely missing in his life. And he did so because we often fail to recognize our pride until God intervenes. And we generally don't recognize God's interventions, have you noticed, until they're behind us. And that holds true whether God is at work quietly in very subtle fashion or has clearly announced his activities. And that explains why each new revelation of God's truth in our lives has a way of revealing something he's already done for us, something we've overlooked. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, God had earlier addressed his pride in a very straightforward fashion. He had only been in his post as the leader of Babylon for four years when the prophet Jeremiah was speaking at an international diplomatic conference in Jerusalem. And as a part of his speaking in that conference, Jeremiah made it clear that Nebuchadnezzar's success and his empire 
was not entirely his doing. God had placed him in his position. Given Nebuchadnezzar's obsession with state security, you can be certain the prophet's words got back to Nebuchadnezzar. But that puffed-up potentate didn't take the words to heart. He overlooked God's clear reminder and God's clear warning, demonstrating yet again that pride doesn't flourish due to an absence of clear warnings. It flourishes because it routinely ignores clear warnings. It ignores them because pride blinds us to reality. It leaves us convinced we don't need a warning. And for that reason, I'd like to suggest that God's people should be absolutely certain about God's truth, but not as certain that they're walking in it. If I could put it differently, we should never got, doubt God's truth, but we should always doubt if we're following it faithfully. Because if we assume we are, we may discover we are not. Pride can blind us all. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar looked back, he recognized that that warning from Jeremiah was the first, but it certainly wasn't the last. He remembered a dream that God placed in his heart. We studied it earlier. That dream was interpreted by Daniel. And as Daniel interpreted, what did he do? He reinforced Jeremiah's words. He reminded Nebuchadnezzar his mighty empire was not eternal. It had an expiration date, and he had been placed at the head of it by God. Then a little while later, he remembered his ridiculous boast at the fiery furnace that if he cast Daniel's friends in, no God could deliver them. And he remembered how that boast had been exposed as hollow and bogus. But despite those warnings, in verse 4, as he shared his testimony, he recounts that he was at ease and flourishing in his palace. Obviously, he hadn't gotten the message. Because once God has exposed our pride, we have no business being at ease <laughs> or feeling like we're flourishing. So just as he had once turned up the heat in the furnace, preparing it for Daniel's friends, God turned up the heat on Nebuchadnezzar. He planted yet another dream in the king's mind. And this one left him very fearful. That gave Daniel another opportunity to interpret the dream, which he did. And in his interpretation, he told Nebuchadnezzar, this is God's way of telling you, if you don't break from your pride and arrogance, and if you don't show mercy to the poor, everything is going to be in jeopardy. And that brings us to the telling verse of this chapter. It's in verse 29. And there Nebuchadnezzar said, 12 months later, 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar reflected on all these repeated warnings from God, and here's what he said as he looked out over Babylon. Is this not the great kingdom I have built 
for my own glory. Twelve months later, twelve months after numerous warnings and revelations, he reflected on everything that had gone down, and he still took all the credit for everything he saw. Twelve months later, he declared his power had created Babylon. Twelve months later, he suggested the empire was his lengthening shadow, an extension of his genius. He had built it. He had done it for his own glory. See, his insecurity wouldn't accept anything less than full credit because the insecurity that undergirds pride has a constant appetite for credit. It hungers for applause and acknowledgement. Pride's favorite words are, look at what I have done. In short, pride covets the applause for God's performances. And that's true not only in a pagan emperor's heart, but sadly, sometimes it's true in the hearts of God's people. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to look at what God did next. And I'm going to review at that time the initially painful but ultimately liberating process God used to produce humility and praise and a return to sanity. I'm going to look at that because it reveals how God lovingly responds to pride when he finds it in us. How he responds in the hopes of an equally transforming outcome. But for the remainder of our time this weekend, I want to sober focus on the sober warning embedded in those three words 12 months later. Scripture indicates there is a bit, of, a bit of Nebuchadnezzar in all of us. And it shouldn't surprise us, given the fact that Scripture says we've all sinned, and sin always produces a sense of insecurity in our souls, and insecurity gives birth to pride. And once pride is in place, like Nebuchadnezzar, we tend to ignore or defend ourselves when God gives us repeated warnings. And we do it in a number of ways. And here's the first. We limit our thoughts of pride to its most obvious, unembarrassed, and ugly expressions. We think of flagrant racism and sexism and nationalism as illustrative of pride. We picture the white supremacist, the office blowhard, the patronizing politician, the self-infatuated celebrity with a smarmy entourage, the real housewives of anywhere, the pastor with as many titles as congregants, the condescending CEO, the entitled athlete who speaks of himself in the third person. We think of those things when we think of pride, because it produces a convenient, self-righteous outrage and an addicting smugness that gets us off the hook for our pride. 
People have referred to it as the Jerry Springer effect. It's the way we tell ourselves, oh, like everybody, I battle with pride, but at least I'm not a hot mess like that person. And what we conveniently forget is that pride is most seductive when it presents itself in less obvious but equally corrosive forms. Pride is revealed when we have difficulty admitting we made a mistake. Pride is we revealed when we continually feel a need to defend ourselves or to justify ourselves. Pride is revealed when we blame people who are suffering, suggesting that they're suffering because of their own failures. Evidently, that was something Nebuchadnezzar was doing, given Daniel's appeal that he needed to show mercy to the poor. Pride is revealed when we look at the suffering and say, well, it's their fault. Pride is revealed when we take all the credit for our success in echoes of Nebuchadnezzar's words when he said, the kingdom which I myself have built. Pride is revealed when we assume we're always the good guys, while those of a different politic, a different economy, a different ethnicity, or a different nationality clearly are not. It's revealed when our social media postings and comments are aimed at denigrating those of another opinion while demonstrating our own enlightened status. It's revealed in what is called virtue signaling, participation in some event or some group that establishes our superiority over those who don't participate. Now the flip side of that is the tendency today of some professing believers to signal their virtue by non-participation in the local church, thereby proving that they don't share the frailties that plague most of us. Pride can even disguise itself as chronic insecurity and a low self-image because those things, while they appear to be the opposite of pride, are at their core Ego, self-centered, and very demanding. And finally, we must not forget, pride can and frequently does express itself in God's kingdom. Now that shouldn't surprise us. After all, the first example of arrogance, and still the most brazen arrogance of all time, originated where? in heaven, originated in the heart of a gifted worship leader, an angelic being in heaven, who many believe was the prime worship leader in heaven, by the name of Lucifer. And it's for that reason that we shouldn't be surprised that some of Paul's letters address rot, what? Pride and the divisions in the church caused by pride. It's why the final book of the Bible calls out smug, spiritual, self-righteousness, and pride. Now sadly, 
it appears that the Christian world is becoming increasingly littered with the bloated egos of little Nebuchadnezzars. Pastors and teachers who hunger for the short-lived, ever-diminishing buzz of celebrity rather than the sustained joys of humility. And if you dance the tune, you eventually pay the piper. And that's why we've come to the place in the American church where now almost weekly we read about yet another celebrity pastor, another celebrity teacher, another celebrity ministry leader being caught in immorality or being dismissed from their position because of hideous, abusive, cult-like leadership practices. See, those things are the extensions of insecurity and pride. We live in a culture where God's goods gifts are prostituted to enhance human egos and human kingdoms and human reputations. And God is frequently robbed of the applause that should go to him and no one else. In echoes of Nebuchadnezzar, we now hear things like, is this the, not the great work that I started in my own home and built into a megachurch? Is this not the great movement of God in this hour? Or we are the top church in this area. And the undiscerning see that as indicative of reality and in their own insecurity and pride, flock to it. Earlier I stated we often fail to recognize our pride until God intervenes. In closing, let me add that if we aren't open to the idea that we ourselves are suffering from pride, we'll probably fail to recognize God's interventions, just as Nebuchadnezzar failed to recognize intervention after intervention after intervention after intervention, and then said 12 months later. 12 months later, we'll find ourselves mired in deception, and life is too short for that. And what's at stake is too important for that. So over the next couple of weeks, before we revisit this chapter, and frankly, for every week thereafter for the rest of your life, I want to encourage you to get before the Lord and say, Search me, O God, and show me if and where the evil of pride is found within me. Because it is so subtle. It doesn't come with blaring announcement. It creeps in on kitten's paws. It comes in disguised as righteousness. It comes in disguised as passion for God's kingdom. It comes in disguised as a passion for justice. 
But if we aren't careful, we look up one day, and there we are, smug, satisfied. Like the Pharisees of old, essentially thanking God we aren't like those others. And then God might have to do something drastic. I don't have a true life verse other than Father, forgive him for he doesn't know what he's doing. But something I have always carried close to my heart is this declaration of Scripture. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. When I get to the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to need a lot of grace. I've got a hunch you probably will as well. Grace will be poured out to the humble. Resistance to the proud. So ask the Lord, Lord, show me. Where do my conversations reflect pride? Where do my words on social media reflect pride? Do my likes on social media reflect pride? Do my opinions of others who disagree with me reflect pride? Do my politics reflect pride? Do my priorities reflect pride? Am I suffering from the Jerry Springer effect? Looking at those who are a hot mess so that I don't see my own smoldering mess. And if you'll ask God, you know what? He'll show you. Because he wants to liberate you from everything that binds you and blinds you. And when he shows you, don't Wait 12 months to act. When he speaks, react immediately. You may have to go through a journey, but start the journey immediately because the hardest obedience of all is delayed obedience. Delayed obedience is always so much harder than immediate obedience. If Nebuchadnezzar had obeyed God's warnings early, he never would have had to been reduced to insanity, eating grass like a beast of the field. That was God's last measure for a man who blew through one warning after another. God is speaking, and he's always speaking about the ancient evil of pride in our hearts. When he speaks, don't wait till 12 months later. Let's pray together. And as we pray, take a few moments to just talk to the Lord right now. And ask him in the days immediately ahead. Invite him in the days immediately ahead to speak to you about pride in your heart. None of us is above it. And it can be very subtle. But God will be very direct.
Father, you have a desire, a relentless desire to liberate us from everything that would demean us, diminish us, degrade us, disappoint us, dehumanize us. And pride does all of those things. So we know that you are eternally opposed to human arrogance, wherever you find it, even in the hearts of your people. We all know that we are saints under construction. We are not finished products yet. There's much work left to be done in all of our hearts. But Lord, I pray that the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his ensuing testimony would alert us that we always have to be on guard against pride, and especially so when we don't think we have a problem with it. Search our hearts, O oh God. Show us where pride has found a foothold in our spirits. Help us to deal with it immediately rather than 12 months later so that we're positioned to keep our faith in a corrupt culture, but more importantly even than that, to demonstrate something better to a world that every day suffers the hideous, hideous consequences of foolish human pride. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.